0: There are now four Sundays before Easter Sunday, including this one. And for these four Sundays, we're going to make our way through the book of Ruth. The German poet Goethe called Ruth the loveliest complete work on a small scale, handed down to us as an ethical treasure and a rustic delight. Another German writer, Alexander Schroeder, said of Ruth, No poet in the world has written a more beautiful short story. Our second Bible reading is Ruth chapter 1. Now it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to reside in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, And the names of his two sons were Marlon and Kilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem in Judah. So they entered the land of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. And they took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. And they lived there about 10 years. Then both Marlon and Kilion also died. And the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the land of Moab. Because she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited his people by giving them food. So she departed from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her. And they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord grant that you may find a place of rest, each one in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they raised their voices and wept. However, they said to her, No, but we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return, my daughters. Why should you go with me? Do I still have sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Return, my daughters. Go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I said I have hope, if I were even to have a husband tonight, and also give birth to sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is much more bitter for me than for you, because the hand of the Lord has come out against me. And they raised their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Then she said, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister in law. But Ruth said, Do not plead with me to leave you or to turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you sleep, I will sleep. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and worse, if Anything but death separates me from you. when she saw that she was determined to go with her, she stopped speaking to her about it. So they both went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they had come to Bethlehem, all the city was stirred because of them, and the women said, Is this Naomi? But she said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi? Since the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has afflicted me. So Naomi returned, and with her Ruth the Moabites, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. This is the word of the Lord. please do keep those pages open during the sermon so we can all look closely at what God is saying to us in his word. Let's bow our heads now and pray for God's spirit to teach us. The writer of Psalm 119 says to God, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Father, as your word is preached this morning, We pray that we would taste its sweetness and recognize its goodness for our lives. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. One kind of story that can easily grip the imagination is the story of a quest. Whether it's knights on horseback, hunting for a dragon or a young wizard looking for a sorcerer's stone, or pirates sailing for a far-off island with hidden gold, quest stories quickly become unputdownable as we turn the pages, eager to find out whether the quest will succeed. And so I'm pleased to say that the Book of Ruth is about a quest. It's the true story of a quest that happened during days of peril and danger. We know the times are dangerous from verse 1, the very start of the book. It begins in the days when the judges governed. And if you've ever read the book of Judges, you'll remember what happened during those days. Israel kept sinning against God, leading to conflict with enemy nations and also conflict within Israel. The time when the judges governed wasn't a safe or stable period of history. Anyone going on a quest at that time was putting their life at risk. Who would be brave enough or desperate enough to do that? The answer is two women. One is an Israelite named Naomi, and the other is a Moabite named Ruth. These women are poor. Later in the book, it becomes clear that they have no crops of their own and no money to buy food. Not only are they poor, They're also living at a time when women were not expected to live independent lives. In the eyes of the people of that time period, Naomi and Ruth are human driftwood. That's how they seem to the world, but Naomi and Ruth aren't drifting, they're women on a quest, and we find out what the goal of their quest is in verse nine. Naomi is speaking to Ruth and to her, other daughter-in-law, Orpah, and she says to them in verse 9, May the Lord grant that you may find a place of rest. May the Lord grant that you may find a place of rest. Later in the book, in chapter 3, Naomi returns to the same theme of finding a resting place. She says, My daughter, she's talking to Ruth, My daughter, shall I not seek a resting place for you, that it may go well for you? She knows she and Ruth haven't yet achieved their goal. That's the start of chapter 3 in this four-chapter book. Now, for women in Naomi and Ruth's position at that time, finding a resting place involved marriage. That's why in verse 9, Naomi speaks about Ruth and Orpah finding rest in the house of a husband. They had been married to Naomi's sons, but both those men have died. The natural way for Ruth and Orpah to find rest now would be to seek a new husband from their own people, the Moabites. That's what anyone in the ancient world hearing this story would expect them to do. And that's exactly what Orpah chooses to do but Ruth is different. We'll go into this in more detail later on, but in brief, Ruth stays with Naomi and with Naomi's God. Many artists have painted scenes from the book of Ruth, and this is one of the scenes that has often been painted. Ruth clinging to her mother-in-law Naomi in the foreground of the painting While behind them, Orpah, with her back to the viewer, is walking away from them, choosing her own country and her own gods. So together, Naomi and Ruth set off in dangerous times to seek a new resting place. We won't reach the end of their quest today. This is... Just chapter one, three further chapters to come. But what we'll see today is that the God of Israel can be trusted to help them. The God of Israel can be trusted to help them. And that message is just as important for us now as it was for them then. Naomi's God, the God of the Bible, can be trusted to help us if we look to him. Today's passage explains the background events leading up to Naomi and Ruth's quest. And among these background events, there are five acts of God, two acts of judgment, and three acts of mercy. We'll spend the rest of the sermon looking at these five acts of God before we apply the passage to our own 21st century lives here in New York. We'll start with judgment part one, judgment Part 1. Please look down to verse 1 on page 10. In the days... Now it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land. This famine was an act of divine judgment. That's not something we can say or should say about every famine that happens throughout the world. Our world has suffered from a general fallenness ever since the very first humans chose to reject God and his rule. Most of the sicknesses and famines and natural disasters that take place shouldn't be classified as special acts of divine judgment. They're ripple effects of the fall. But the famine in verse 1 is different. When God brought The Israelites into the land of Canaan, the promised land, he said that things would go well for them if they stayed faithful to him by keeping his commands. He also warned them that things would go very badly for them if they broke his commands and worshipped other gods. Those promises and warnings were part of God's covenant with Israel, a kind of package deal agreed between God and the Israelites, his chosen people. And in light of that covenant agreement with its warnings, the famine in verse 1 should be understood as an act of judgment. God is withholding food from his people because of their sin, their faithlessness at that time. It's a somber beginning to the book. But we're only halfway through verse 1, and in the second half of verse 1, things get worse. An Israelite family responds to God's judgment by inviting further judgment to come upon themselves. The second half of verse 1 says, And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to reside in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. The man's name is Elimelech, which means, My God is King. But sadly, he didn't live up to his name. It's rather like a woman named Patience, whose catchphrase is, Excuse me, how long is this going to take? Elimelech rejected Israel's God as his king when he left the land of Israel. You might say, give the man a chance, his family was starving, you can't blame him for leaving Israel to try to find some food. But the Old Testament is clear, with only one or two very special exceptions. God's people should stay in the land he provided for them, even when the food has run out. Psalm 33 says, The eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those who wait for his steadfast love that he may deliver them from death and keep them alive in famine and keep them alive in famine that's how those trusting in the God of Israel should react to a famine they should continue looking to him their God to keep them alive in famine. Instead, Elimelech took his family out of the Promised Land to Moab. And what's more, by leaving Israel, they were leaving God's presence. Yes, the God of the Bible is the God of the whole world, but he had chosen the tabernacle in Israel as his dwelling place. And Elimelech and his family were leaving the tabernacle far behind them They were walking away from true worship in that period of salvation history by walking away from the tabernacle. Limelech's decision to leave for Moab showed that he didn't fear the Lord. He wasn't waiting for the Lord's steadfast love to be revealed in his life. There is something worse than physical hunger and that is putting yourself and your family in spiritual danger, taking yourself and your family away from godly influences and into a land of false gods. Elimelech made the wrong call. He literally turned his back on the God of Israel. Let's move on now to judgment part two. Remember, there are mercies still to come, more mercies than judgments. But before we reach God's acts of mercy, there's a second act of judgment. Please look down with me to verses three through five. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left with her two sons. And they took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. Then both Marlon and Kilion also died. And the woman was left, without her two sons and her husband. Three deaths in the family, Elimelech and both of his and Nehemi's sons. As with famine, death, usually isn't a targeted act of judgment. God responding directly to a person's sin. Death, like famine, is part of the world's general fallenness. But sometimes God does put someone to death as a direct act of judgment against them because of their sin. And it's right to place the deaths of Elimelech and his sons in that direct judgment category. Those covenant warnings we were thinking about earlier included warnings of death. Elimelech ignored them when he took his family to a land of false gods, when he took his family away from the dwelling place of the God of Israel. Marlon and Kilion, Elimelech's sons, also ignored God's covenant warnings. They may not have been responsible for the decision to move to Moab. That may well have been the decision of their parents. But once they were there, they chose to take Moabite wives. God had forbidden the Israelites from marrying people from other nations because he knew those foreign spouses would introduce pagan worship to the household, to the people of Israel. And so we can attribute all three of these deaths to God's special hand of judgment. That's how Naomi herself seems to read the situation. In the second half of verse 21, she says, the Lord has testified against me. There it is on page 11. The second half of verse 21, the Lord has testified against me. She's using law court language. She recognizes the law breaking aspect of her family's conduct. God has served as prosecutor, witness and judge. Naomi herself hasn't died, and we'll come back to that in a moment, but through those three bereavements she's experienced the bitter taste of God's judgment. Do not call me Naomi. She says in verse 20, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. The name Mara means bitter. It's worth saying that God's covenant warnings to the Israelites had to be severe to restrain the Israelites from worshipping other gods. God gave frightening warnings because he loved the Israelites and he then had to act on those warnings because what God says is meaningful. He doesn't speak idly. God's aim in all this was to keep his people from the spiritual catastrophe of rejecting covenant relationship with him. Well, let's now turn from judgment to mercy. There are three acts of divine mercy in this passage. Here's mercy part one. God preserves Naomi's life. What she says in verse 21 shows she's aware of some responsibility on her part for what's happened to her family. She says, the Lord has testified against me. Perhaps she never spoke out against Elimelech's decision to move the family to Moab. She never tried to persuade him not to do that, perhaps. Perhaps she never spoke out against her son's marriages to Moabite women. In verse 21, she acknowledges some blameworthiness on her part, and yet God mercifully preserves her life. Verse 5 says, The woman was left without her two sons and her husband. She was left. Her husband and sons were gone, but she was left. The grief must have been overwhelming, but Naomi was left. One of the themes running through the Bible is the theme of the remnant, the surviving remnant, the remnant of people who are left after God's judgment, his righteous judgment. Listen to these words from the book of Isaiah. Though your people, O Israel, be like the sand by the sea, only a remnant will return. Destruction has been decreed. In that day, the remnant of Israel, the survivors, will truly rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. A remnant of Jacob will return to the mighty God. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Those remnant verses from Isaiah have so much in common with what happens here in Ruth 1. After righteous destruction, there's a remnant, a survivor, Naomi, who at last learns to rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. Mercy part 1 is the preservation of Naomi. God's second act of mercy can be seen in verse 6, at the top of page 11. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the land of Moab because she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited his people by giving them food. That's mercy part two. God supplies his people with bread. That's what a should have waited for. There was no need for him to turn his back on God and take his family to Moab. We know from verse 19 that the people who were in Bethlehem before Naomi's family left are still there when she returns. They recognize her. They know her name. Those Bethlehem townsfolk have made it through the famine. They stayed within the boundaries of the promised land. And in due time, their God, the God of Israel, supplied them with bread. It's an act of mercy to those people in the land, but it's also mercy part two for Naomi over in Moab because it draws her back to Israel. Listen again to verse six. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the land of Moab because she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited his people by giving them food. Because she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had given his people food. Do you see how God is lovingly at work in Naomi's life? Through this second mercy, he's drawing Naomi back to Israel. It's because she hears in Moab about his mercy to his people in Israel that she goes back to Israel. God is drawing her back to the place where she can live in covenant relationship with him. She can't live in covenant relationship with God in Moab. He draws her back to Israel, where she can live in covenant relationship with him. Let's now press on to God's third act of mercy before we finish with an application for our own lives from this passage. Mercy Part 3 is found in verses 16 and 17 where Ruth unexpectedly makes a binding commitment to stay with Naomi. Let's look down please to verse 15 and I'll read from there. Then she said, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not plead with me to leave you or to turn back from following you, for where you go, I will go, and where you sleep, I will sleep. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and worse, if anything but death separates me from you. If the book of Ruth had ended at chapter 1, verse 13, it would have been a tale of sin and its consequences. Yes, there are glimmers of God-given hope, Naomi's survival, the news of food back in Israel, but if the story had ended at verse 10, it would essentially have been a story of sin and its effects, like so many other stories that could be told about human beings in this world. But then Ruth speaks up, and all of a sudden this is a different kind of story. Ruth's words are so unexpected and out of the ordinary, they are like icy water suddenly thrown in your face on a hot and humid afternoon. The reason why Ruth's words sound strange and unusual is because they are. Naomi has nothing to offer her from a worldly point of view, as Naomi honestly admits. In verse 12, Ruth was under no obligation to commit herself to Naomi like this. Going back to Moab would have been the natural thing for Ruth to do, but instead she commits herself for life to the foreign mother of her deceased husband. There's something staggeringly good about Ruth's gift of herself to Naomi that the glory should go to God Ruth's gift of herself to Naomi not only as a daughter-in-law but as a daughter-in-law now committed to Naomi's God that gift is God's doing Ruth is God's gift to Naomi James chapter 1 verse 17 says every good and perfect gift is from above coming down from the father this is mercy part 3 for Naomi because if you're going on a quest for a resting place in dangerous times it's so much better to have company than to be alone and later in the book we'll see that it's Ruth who is instrumental in bringing her and Naomi's quest to a wonderful conclusion Truly, Ruth's gift of herself to Naomi is God's third act of mercy to Naomi. Well, it's time to ask ourselves what we should learn from this Bible passage. How should it transform our lives? Studying the Bible should always be transformative, whether you're a young Christian or a mature Christian. We need God's Word to do its work in our minds and hearts and lives. Let me suggest a one-line takeaway. Don't leave God out of your quests. Don't leave God out of your quests. Elimelech left God out of his family's quest for food. They went to Moab, away from the promised land, away from the tabernacle. They went to Moab, a land of false gods. They turned their back on the one true God, the God of Israel, the God of the Bible, and things turned out disastrously. When Naomi looks once again to the God of Israel to help her, she receives mercy. Now, we're not living in the same period of salvation history as Naomi and her family. The new covenant doesn't contain the same threats of judgment in this world as the Old Covenant. But the ultimate danger of worshipping false gods is as real for us as it was for them. To be safe on the coming day of God's justice, we need to remain in right relationship with God through Jesus. This Bible chapter warns us not to leave God out of our quests, our major quests, our minor quests, anything we set out to do we're not to seek things in this world without reference to god without reference to his will and his commands think of the difference between the quest at the start of this chapter and the quest at the end elimelech and his family turned their backs on the one true god to seek food for three members of that four-person family their quest leads to physical destruction, with further judgment to follow. But in contrast, the quest at the end of the chapter has God in it. Naomi and Ruth are looking to the God of Israel, the one true God for a resting place. They've come back to his land and they both speak of him as the one who holds their lives in his hands. Ruth says in verse 17, May the Lord do so to me, and worse, if anything but death separates me from you. She she uses God's covenant name, translated in English Bibles as the Lord, but in the original language that's God's covenant name, Yahweh. May Yahweh do so to me, and worse, if anything but death separates me from you. She's taking the name of Israel's God on her lips. Naomi similarly says in verse 21, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. They both speak of Israel's God as the one with power over them. Their quest for a resting place has God in it. It's a God-given quest in line with his purposes, which of the chapter's two quests? Do your personal quests resemble Elimelech's at the start or Naomi and Ruth's at the end? Elimelech must have said to himself, I've got to find food. Even if it means turning my back on God, I have got to find food and God doesn't seem able to provide it. So I'll take matters into my own hands. Do you ever find yourself saying something like that? I've got to find X even if it means turning my back on God and since God doesn't seem to be providing X I'll take matters into my own hands. Here are some possible X's if you see what I mean that might resonate with you. I've got to find success in my work in my career even if it means turning my back on God in some way to get it. I've got to find someone to marry, even if it means turning my back on God by marrying someone who isn't following Jesus. I've got to find a better place to live, even if it means turning my back on God in some way, to, to get out of this place and find a new place. I've got to find pornography on the internet, although that will mean turning my back on god i've got to travel and have new experiences even if doing so will mean in some way turning my back on god do any of those x's fit with your experience perhaps there's something different in your life pulling you towards a quest without reference to god but whatever the x might be For you and for me, let us all learn from Ruth chapter 1 to pursue God-given quests with his help. Remember those words from Psalm 33. The eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those who wait for his steadfast love, that he may deliver them from death and keep them alive in famine. If you are in a famine situation right now, God can deliver you. You don't need to go on a God-ignoring quest for satisfaction. The eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those who wait for his steadfast love, that he may deliver them from death and keep them alive in famine. God's steadfast love found its fullest expression more than a thousand years after the time of Naomi and Ruth. His own son was sent forth from heaven on a God-given quest to rescue all those who come to him. Galatians chapter 4 says, When the time had fully come, God sent forth his Son to redeem those under law that we might receive the full rights of sons. That loving quest led Jesus to his death on the cross The cross was an unavoidable staging post in Jesus' quest. At the cost of his own life, Jesus redeemed everyone who trusts in him by taking their wrongdoing upon himself and receiving the penalty for it from God. Jesus didn't stay dead. His quest continued. He came back from the grave and ascended to heaven from where he will return to judge the living and the dead. Looking ahead to that day, the prophet Isaiah says, in that day the root of Jesse, speaking about the Messiah, speaking about Jesus, will stand as a banner for the peoples, the nations will rally to him and his resting place will be glorious. His resting place will be glorious. Like Naomi and Ruth's quest, Jesus' quest ends with a resting place. In his case, a glorious and eternal resting place. We will join him there if we keep trusting in God's steadfast love for our deliverance. Let's bow our heads to pray. Father in heaven, thank you for revealing your steadfast love in the scriptures and in history. Thank you for sending forth your Son on his quest to save us. We pray that you would help us to trust in your steadfast love for our deliverance even when we're in famine situations, especially when we're in famine situations, would we trust in your steadfast love for our deliverance? Keep us from quests that do not have you in them. We pray instead that you would lead us on God-given quests with your help along the way. For Jesus' sake, amen.